On front page with me this morning is Lukman Harris, anchor and journalist and producer at Astro Awani. Also Rajan Moses, former Reuters foreign correspondent and Business Times editor. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yes, good morning. And uh, well, we're a little confused. Uh, we heard hints earlier this week of a cabinet reshuffle. Now, there's not going to be one apparently. So uh, the question is, you know, despite earlier hints, is a cabinet reshuffle going to help? Since, you know, I believe it's going to be the same people just exchanging portfolios, I mm-hmm. suppose. Uh, Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, the Prime Minister has confirmed that this, you know, change of portfolios will indeed happen. So in a way, the reshuffling will happen, but he do- doesn't know yet when. Obviously, he does know, but he's not going to tell us at this point, but it is going to happen. I, don't, I honestly don't get this. I mean, if you want to reshuffle, introduce new faces, because what's the point? If you're just going to reshuffle the portfolios, it doesn't make sense to me. The logic that some ministers in the cabinet, they have expertise that would suit other portfolios within the cabinet, I do not see that yet. If you want to do it, go all out. I mean, if you want to reshuffle, rejuvenate, make sure you do it properly, not just a re- uh, reorganizing of the portfolios, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is going to be a bit half-cooked. Right. Your thoughts, Rajan? I agree. Uh, there's plenty to do now, given the fact that, you know, we've had uh, talk about a reshuffle, portfolio rearrangement, that kind of thing. But... There's also talk at the same time about Mustafa Muhammad coming in as a cabinet, new cabinet minister. People are wondering about what's the fate of Azmin, you know, after mm-hmm. his last political issue that's going on. So we don't know how wholesale, or how big this reshuffle may or may not take a place. But uh, definitely no smoke without fire. Uh, and the fact is that we really need to uh, no, very soon. It's I, I only think, a matter of time. I think the addition or the reintegration of Tokpa, Mustafa Muhammad, into the cabinet would be a very good move. Coming back to my earlier point, there has right. to be new faces. In fact, he's not exactly new, but experience. Mm-hmm. He did a very good job at MITI, and I think they should have him back. And as for Azmin, I think judging from his capacity to lead, I think he should stay within the cabinet. But we'll, we'll just have to it's wait It's also left to be seen, you know, what uh, PKR is going to say because Dr... M has still not told us about what his thoughts were with PKR yes. uh, uh, over this. He spoke, spoke about DAP, uh, mm-hmm. Amana, you know, going into the reshuffle. This is part of the problem. I do understand party representation. I do understand that it's, it's the deal that was made, which is normal in any government, basically, any coalition government. But when you let party representation be the, you know, utmost factor of introducing people into the cabinet, then it, it becomes a problem because you have to appoint people based on the capabilities and whether they're qualified to execute that post not just based on party representation we've right. seen a lot of party representation ending up in people being appointed to posts that they are actually not really capable of executing right. well do you know when a new um, I guess uh, statement will be coming out on this issue any uh, journalistic rumours I think rumors? the, 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 <laughs> uh, Dr. M has the um, the luxury of yeah. having time on his side yeah. and option on his side so um, he can keep on uh, guessing games for public uh, oh if he wants to. Uh, but it's got to be happen soon because uh, you can see there's some some feeling uh, within that you know, there should be some change. Okay. It's only a matter of time. I guess we just have to wait and see. Now, coming up, it's a go-ahead for bike e-hailing. We'll take a look at that headline next here on Light. 
on Front Page. With me this morning, Lukman Haris from Astra Awani and Rajan Moses, veteran journalist. It looks like the Electoral Reform Committee is suggesting a special body to handle redelineation exercise. How will the redelineation exercise actually help the, with the uh, coming general election? Well, Lukman? obviously, but from what we've seen in GE14 and even before that, the biggest benefit of this is a more it's a fairer this redistribution of seats so that um, there'll be fairer representation because from GE14 we saw that there were disproportionate seats we saw that there was one seat with 200,000 constituents or something like that yeah. and there was another seat with 30,000 constituents so it's very imbalanced so if you kind of do the math and you see the logic of it that one vote does not have the same power in different seats which should not be the case across the country one vote should have the same power the same voice so when we re-delineate that we're going to give a fairer redistribution of the seats, which means every, giving everyone more of an equal voice. Um, I think having a, a, a separate body within the Election Commission to look at redelineation of constituency is a good thing because it then takes the... It's like outsourcing business, you know, where you go and uh, take over the task at hand. And also I not, uh, noticed from comments made so far, there is going to be a body that would have both government and non-government representatives, mm. which is a very good thing. It's fairer. Uh, we've only had it being the, you know sandwiched through our throat in the past by previous commissions. This is a good chance for us to make a fresh start. But the only trouble is that from what I see, it's going to only happen from around 2026, mm. uh, any relation that might take place. So it's, there must be the will within the government you know, yeah. or the uh, commission you know, to uh, try and s- uh, speed this up and maybe you know, fix the problem. Do you feel there will be some challenges because members of the ERC are being elected or chosen by the government um, and opposition? I mean, that's going to be a separate body we're going to have, right, mm. uh, which is going to look at the redenomination. So um, that, again, could be like an EAP, a PAC kind of uh, appointment. But I think know. the PAC does not present um, as much of a threat as uh, to some uh, politicians who practice partisan politics that probably won't get in the way of the PAC. But with this, I'm afraid that they, 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 they will present more hindrance because it will be- present direct disadvantage to them come GE15. So I'm afraid that partisan politics will get in the way to answer your question, Shaz. The yeah. challenge for me, the biggest challenge is that to ensure that we are all in the same boat, to ensure that true bipartisan politics will not get in the way of effective governing and will not get in the way of this being effective. I hope so. Well, coming up, we have um, uh, homes you can get in kale for 300,000 ringgit. Is this a pipe dream? Well, we'll be discussing that next here on Light. On front page with me this morning, Lukman Haris from Astro Awani and Rajan Moses, veteran journalist. And it looks like the Housing and Local Government Minister Zuraida Kamaruddin was quoted as saying that the price of affordable homes should be kept below 300,000 ringgit. And I guess, uh, how would you define affordable housing, uh, Rajan? Well, I mean, somebody's plucked the figure of about 300,000 for Klang Valley uh, kind of homes. It, it's so, so difficult to put a bar on the num- number there because you can get a house for 300,000 in Cheras or you can get 300,000 for a house in Shalam, you know. So, 
uh, it's very difficult uh, to put your finger on and say, hey, an affordable home is this. I think it depends on locality, uh, demand, um, square and, feet, and square feet, the size. And that's going to be the challenge, you know, to put your finger on and say, these are affordable homes. It is difficult. There's a confluence of factors, but international standards say that an affordable house is five times the average income of the people uh, in that country. In, in, in Malaysia, in, in the case of Malaysia, our average income, the latest data that we've got, and I don't know why we don't have the latest data on this for some reason, but as at 2017, our median income, average salary of Malaysians is 2,880, below 3,000. So, means that the median, median home prices in Malaysia exceeds five times the average salary of the average Malaysian, which means that homes in this country, by definition at least, and I think by reality as well, is not affordable. So what can we do to ensure homes are not just affordable, but reasonably priced and not like all the way the heck out in the boondocks? We've looked at this issue for quite some time. And I think I can derive it to three factors, Shaz, as to what we can do. I mean, number one is to curb speculative investments. I mean, this is especially true for, you know, foreigners coming into Malaysia. Yes. They obviously have more money and they snap up all the homes, generally pushing up the price of homes. I mean, recently, we've, we even hear of Hong Kong as wanting to escape uncertainty back in their home yes. uh, city and, and buying as much as, as, as many as 200 homes in Malaysia. So this is one thing. Number two is... Um, Talking about putting the horse before the cart, I've read countless you know, journals and articles and a lot of them say that it's not really houses being expensive in Malaysia. If you compare it with the rest of the world, we are still on the more affordable side. It's mm-hmm. just that our income is yes, not growing. Yes. So these homes technically are not expensive because we have to, I mean, considering how things are around the world right now, homes mm-hmm. are much more expensive. But it's just that we are not making enough. So that's the thing. Number three, of course, is good old-fashioned corporate greed. I mean, developers, Mm -hmm. uh, we understand they are a business. The government has limited funds. The government has to do a million things with the limited funds that that it has. Developers have to chip in more have to cooperate more to produce more affordable homes. But affordable homes are not profitable for developers. They would rather build 500,000 ringgit, 1 million ringgit and above, have them snapped up by wealthy foreigners. But we have to find a middle ground. Developers have to play a more active role working with the government to not just chase profit, but look for a win-win situation that would help them protect their bottom line, but also contribute more affordable housing to Malaysia. Well, if you were making 6.6 million ringgit in salary a year, that wouldn't even be an issue. Coming up, we'll be talking about um, the Singapore Prime Minister's wife defending her husband's salary. That's next here on Light. And on front page with me this morning, veteran journalist Rajan Moses and Lukman Haris, anchor and journalist um, from Astro Awani. This was in the news uh, just yesterday. Singapore Prime Minister's wife takes to Facebook to defend her husband's 6.6 million ringgit salary. I guess the question is, we're all wondering, is 6.6 million ringgit a year uh, is that what a prime minister's job is worth? <laughs> Lukman, to me, no. But it's not our place to say because we're not Singaporeans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always been weirded out by this. Why does the PM of Singapore make so much? He makes 1.6 million US dollars a year. Four times what the President of the United States, Donald Trump, makes. Mm-hmm. 12 times 
what Vladimir Putin makes, the the president of the biggest country in the world, Russia, and four to five times uh, of what all the European leaders make. I mean, the Chancellor of Germany, the leaders of Austria, France, Italy, what have you, even the UK. Uh, and it's 20 times the country's GDP. I honestly do not know why the PMM Singapore makes so much for a country that's so yeah. small. One thing that I always hear about is that it's an effort to stamp out corruption. The, the, if you make sure that your leaders are paid uh, sufficiently, there's less chance of them uh, being corrupt. And Singapore is one of the least corrupt nations in the yeah. world. And we understand that teachers and police uh, force also well remunerated, right? That's good. If mm. that's the case, in Singapore, that is, that is. in Singapore. That, if that's the case, then the wealth is is distributed well but for one man to make so much mm-hmm. i mean he makes four to five times more money than the second world leader in the list which is the uh, chief executive of hong kong carrie lam mm-hmm. so i think it's disproportionate singapore yes singapore is a high income nation people are paid very well but that doesn't mean that one man can make so much there's so many other ways that, again, that wealth can be redistributed yeah on on my part i know it's it's actually their taxpayers money but i'm yep. i'm thinking wow good for him <laughs> what about yeah, you rajin you know i mean the fact is that uh, there are no pensions there are no um, other perks besides the clean salary that comes there and don't forget that you know the singapore leadership the singapore government pm and ministers they all perform extremely well it appears that's why the singapore economy is up there of course now we're going to a recession now mm-hmm. uh, but generally you know uh, they are very good at bringing the competent com- competitive ad- advantage to uh, singapore and you get paid for rewarded for such things where you know you bring singapore bank home uh, as a big name uh, it's small little economy that uh, rattling you know all economies all around same time mm-hmm. so that there is there is a reason for wanting to have you know the kind of uh, remuneration equal to what you know you get the recognition yeah i still think it's too much but but i do not lose sleep over this issue at <laughs> night because i'm not singaporean if singaporeans are fine with this who am i to say absolutely right? yeah, agree. exactly yes. well coming up it looks like a green light for the bike e-hailing that's been in the news we'll discuss that next here on light On front page with me this morning, Lukman Haris from Astro Awani and veteran journalist Rajan Moses. It looks like a go-ahead for bike e-hailing, but I remember in September of last year, Transport Minister Anthony Luke maintained that motorcycle e-hailing services wouldn't be allowed due to safety concerns. So what's changed? Rajan? Um, I think uh, nothing really much has changed except the statements are picking up. Uh, more pro uh, e-hail uh, statements out there. Uh, when we look at it, this whole Gojek involvement in, in this matter suddenly has uh, taken a twist because n- nobody, you know, were uh, bothered about this for a while. Now suddenly he's gained after Jokowi, you know, came into power and he came in to visit Malaysia uh, and then this gojek idea became uh, crystallized so we got so many things that we have not done yet to facilitate this yeah. kind of e-hailing we have road and there's, 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 a, there's a total lawlessness out there on the highways mm-hmm. just look at federal highway in KL 
go no further. How are we going to manage these things? And then don't forget the fact that we've got motorcyclists who are, you know, having problems with their, their insurance, their road tax and uh, enforcement. Mm-hmm. I, I think let's get the perspective. We really need more uh, control over about motorcyclists before we talk about e-hailing. Th- that's, that's where I respectfully disagree because uh, all these issues that we are facing, we are facing w- with drivers as well. Road rages, mm-hmm. uh, recent cases mostly involve, so as I can remember, cars and not motorcycles. Oh, you should go onto highways more often, Lokman. <laughs> so, when we want to execute something, right, there's obviously pros and cons. And if we wait for the con side to be like totally nil for us to execute any new measure, then we won't get anything much done at all. Um, the thing is, I think the pros of having Gojek far outweigh the cons. I mean, first of all, based on what I've heard and what I've I've seen, the service would be limited to within areas like KL and everything where, you know, accidents are fewer for motorcycles because they cannot ride as fast. Uh, it's not really interstate highways where they can uh, ride fast and get involved in accidents and things like that because the concern is safety. Plus, I think it is a good way of motorcyclists generating extra income, extra revenue. We always talk about empowering the B40, the lower M40, for example, and most of these people ride motorcycles. And what better way for us to give a chance for them in their pastime, in their free time to generate extra income? What about These you, are the people who need it the most. Have you ever tried getting on someone's, you know, on the back of someone's bike? I have multiple times. And in fact, there was this one motorcycle e-healing service last time called Digo in 2017. Digo, yes. And they're, they're, they're talking about making comeback now that the government is making this move but before that before this uh, Digo is pretty much active and I tried it we did a special report of it in, in, in Awani it was very effective if we wait for zero accidents for us to execute this then we will never execute this it's sharing economy we need to catch up that was front page of course you can catch the entire interview you can catch the entire hour on our Shock app just download the Shock app on Google Play or the Apple App Store